Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, John 14 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't, hopefully you're sitting on that side of the room where you can actually see the words on the screen. We're wrapping up our series going through John's seven I am statements, seven times that Jesus in John's gospel says, this is who I am. You might be asking yourself, Luke, don't people usually start new series the Sunday after Easter? And I say to that, yes, but we had a snow day and I wrote the sermon and I'm not going to waste it. So we're going to go through the sermon today. That's John 14. And then next week, we're going to start a new series entitled Prayer 101. If you've ever wrestled with the idea of, I want to be a person of prayer, but I don't know how. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. I don't even know where to begin. This will be a great series for you as we talk about what it means to become a person of prayer. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be aware of your presence this morning. That you are the God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And that there is not one place in this world and there's not one place in our lives that you are not there already. And so let us be aware of that. And let us be aware of the God who has revealed himself in Jesus. And the good news that is for all of us. We all come before you broken and hurting and imperfect and guilty and ashamed of things and hurt by things and fearful of things. But we come to you because we know that in you we find love. We pray this in your name. Amen. So trying to see God has always been a hard task. It's never been something that was easy. Actually, in ancient Rome, and ancient Greece, there was a great emphasis put on pilgrimages. You would go on these long journeys to get to see a deity. They had these pilgrimages that actually, they would have certain states that would send delegates that would go for the entire country to see the gods. Olympus and other places where sports were a big deal were often connected, not just with the athletic endeavor, but engaging with the deities. So you go to these places like Olympus or Cowboy Stadium and in hope to find a deity there. That's why they existed. But a big part of these pilgrimages was also going up on mountains. They had these things called, they would actually refer to them as theorias, which comes from the Greek word for seeing or perceiving. And there's that one story of one of these pilgrimages that comes from a gentleman from Athens. He writes this drama of two ladies, one older, one younger, and they decide they're going to go up on a mountain to see the harvest god, Dionysius. And as they go up on the mountain, the, the younger woman says, let's walk. The older woman says, let's ride in a carriage. You might be a little bit more sensible. But the younger woman says, no, we've got to walk because it honors the God more because it's harder. Hard was the word that was used to describe an, an effort or an attempt to see the divine. In Athens, every two years, women would go on these pilgrimages to Delphia, where they'll go up on a mountain and they would see the deities. But along the way, they would have to stop at these way stations and dance, because that was part of the ritual. Now, one of the early fights in my marriage was on our first road trip to Atlanta, Georgia. And I believe, as any God-fearing man does, you don't stop on road trips until you get there. My wife did not ascribe to that same sort of belief, which is why we don't go on road trips anymore but you know what? I would stop if every time there was a way station, she had to get out and do a Macarena like they did back then because that was part of the pilgrimage. You'd have to stop and do these dances as they go. And needless to say, seeing God was not an easy thing to do. But lucky for us, 
God has now invested his marketing plan in food. Because that's where we get to see God these days. If you haven't noticed, check this out. You'll find all over the internet people who believe they have seen God in things like Cheetos. Which is so much easier than going on the mountain. We've got other ones. Let's go to the next one. You find God in a bagel, which is great. You see Jesus? Yeah. Now, this is a great one. A burrito. Jesus shows up in the burnt sign right there on the top. How awesome is that? Let's go to the next one. A banana, if you want your potassium and your God. Huh, there you go, banana. We've got more. Keep them going. Uh, toast, yes. You have Jesus' image burnt into your heart. Go to the next one. Now, this is a, a, an orange, and obviously the person who peeled this uh, was luckily they didn't, uh, they, they cut it instead of they peeled it, so they actually got to see Jesus kind of there on the top, which is real nice. And we've got another one right here of food, a potato chip. So, um, that's a huge potato chip. I don't know if that's real or not, but if you're saying, is God just in processed food? No, he's also in crustaceans. Check this one out. Oh, wrong cue. My joke would be a whole lot funner if you go to the next slide. Oh, well, you're ruining my punchline. There's a crustacean right there. That looks a little bit like Jesus and a little bit like Osama bin Laden. Um, that's okay. And last but not least, we've already told you that if you really want to see God, you just go to Walmart and he shows up on your receipt. How great is that? There's Jesus right there. Right? Awesome. Now, obviously, it's a whole lot easier to see God in things like that, but that's not what it was like in antiquity. You had to go on these pilgrimages. But it's not any different if you're a Jewish person. You don't get to see God if you're a Jew. Moses one time was about to lead the people and he is fearful because he doesn't know who to say is sending him. And so you have this interaction in Exodus 33 in which God is sending Moses and Moses says, I, I don't even know who to say is sending me. And he says, let me see you. And this is the interaction that Moses has with God about seeing him. God says in Exodus 33, but you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. For Moses to see God, God said, I'm going to tuck you in the cleft of the rock with my hand, and as I'm passing by, you can see my backside, but that's all you can see. You can't see my face wasn't just a bad idea. It was one of the top 10 terrible things that a Jew could do is to make an image of God. Not just any of the commandments said you shouldn't have images, but the very first one, there shall be no image of the deity that you create because you can't see God. So that's the background to what happens in John 14. In our text this morning, we have this as what's behind everything that's being said. In John 14, we have this interaction with Jesus and the disciples after the Last Supper. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Up until this point, if someone wanted to see God, you would be lucky to get the Moses treatment and have God hide you in the cleft of the rock and you'd just be able to gaze at his backside. But in Jesus, God makes a drastic turn. You see, the question behind Philip's question is, show us the Father, it's the same thing that Moses asked. But the response is completely different. God doesn't say, well, I'll tuck you in the back of a rock and then maybe you can see my backside. He doesn't say, well, you go up on a, on a big mountaintop and maybe you'll have an experience. He doesn't say you can't have an image. Instead, in Jesus, God makes a drastic turn and says, if you want to see God, just look at me. Because I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, I am the way. I am the one who mediates God and humanity. I am the way for that mediation to take place. I am the truth because I am the one who reveals God to you. If you want to see God, look at me and I am the life because I give salvation. God makes a drastic turn from the way that he has hidden himself from humanity in Jesus. And in Jesus, God says, look at me. I am right here. And so everything else can get off the stage. We all make attempts to find the divine. We all make attempts to see something that transcends our normal experience. G.K. Chesterton has been attributed with a line that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is really looking for God. In the experiences that we try to have in the pleasures of life, in the successes of life, we are often still looking for that same thing. We are trying to find God. It might not be a mountaintop, but it might be our own mountaintop experience. We are looking for something bigger. But in Jesus, God says, get everything else off the stage. This is royalty, and this is what you need to see. And no one else should be on the stage. Okay, I don't know if you guys heard this story. But a few months ago, there was the SNL 40 big anniversary show. Anyone here who's a fan of SNL? Yes. Okay. You guys. Okay. Good. Well, after the SNL 40 show, which they had a ton of people, it was like this big three-hour special. There was a huge after-party at the Plaza Hotel in New York. I say this because I'm assuming not everyone was invited to that party here. But there was a writer, uh, Andrew Miller, the guy who wrote Live from New York, a uh, one of the great histories of SNL. He tells a story of going to the Plaza Hotel, and it's like this three-level event, and each level you go and interact with more and more celebrities. He said, there's more celebrities than I'd ever seen before, and this guy writes for the Times and Rolling Stone. He said, I've never seen anything like it. Well, at the party, they had, the stage was full with instruments, but there was no band there. And so Paul McCartney, you guys know who that is? Have you heard of them? Good, I like to hear that. So he gets on stage with uh, uh, Dan Aykroyd, and they start playing. And they say Jimmy Fallon, and Jimmy Fallon gets waved on the stage, and so he starts acting like the impromptu DJ for this party. And so next thing you know, Dan Aykroyd, Paul McCartney, Jimmy Fallon are singing, and then Taylor Swift comes on stage, and so Paul McCartney is singing Shake It Off in his accent. Shake it off, shake it off. And, and the next thing you know, 
Michael Bolton comes on stage and he's singing When a Man Loves a Woman or some other song. I don't know if he has any other. And the next thing you know, the B-52s come on stage and they're singing Love Shack. And then Dave Chappelle tells Fallon, hey, hey, Prince is in the back. Try to get Prince on stage. And so Jimmy Fallon says, Prince, come on stage. And then like the crowd parts and Prince hovers under the stage as rock royalty that he is. He shows up on the stage and he sings the, let's, whatever the name of the song is he sang. He sang um, some song, which I forgot the title. And the crowd is just jamming. Everyone is excited, but something happened. As soon as Prince is done, no one else wants to get on stage. The rumor is Beyonce was on the front and she was about to go on. And Prince goes on and Beyonce goes, um, I'm just going to go to the left, the left. She doesn't want to get on the stage. Miley Cyrus was on before, and no one was afraid to follow Miley Cyrus. But when Prince is on the stage, everyone's like, no, y'all good. I'm just going to stay over here. I'm not going to follow Prince on stage. Once you have royalty on stage, everything else needs to get off the stage. In Jesus God says, I have put royalty on the stage. I have had my one big reveal. This is who I am. And so every other attempt to show you the divine needs to go stage left because it doesn't compare to me. Because in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life has been revealed. The way to mediate between God and humanity. The truth of who God has been revealed. The life that gives salvation. It's all there in Jesus. And nothing else can compare so in a couple of weeks, uh, one of the most important holidays of the year in my life is coming up, uh, the NFL draft. And uh, I have this, this very sick obsession with the draft, and I don't know where it came from. I know Wagner understands this. Often he'll call me up just to be nice. We'll talk about the worship service. We'll spend five minutes or so, and then he'll say, who do you think the Cowboys are going to pick? And 35 minutes later, I'll stop talking, and I, I just have an obsession with it. But the heart of the NFL draft is you're trying to project what college kids are going to do when they play against professional athletes. It's interesting to me how you project something into a different environment. It's interesting. And this is really ultimately what dating is supposed to be. You're supposed to project what someone is like on a first date, and you try to think, what are they going to be like for the rest of their life? Which is kind of a daunting task to give some 22-year-old. Like, hey, I want to see if you can project what someone's going to be like for the next 60 years. Good luck with that, you know? It's not easy to project, right? It's not easy to project what something's going to be like. And we see that when we wonder what God is like. In the tradition I came from, I heard this line all the time. Like, if you were, if you were in a car, and you're about to get in a car accident, and you yelled out some word you probably shouldn't say, according to this tradition, and then you died in the car accident, what would God say to you? Right? Have you heard that? Like, if you died and the last thing you said was something you probably don't want to say too often, what's God going to say to you then? And the real question behind that is, what is God going to do if he catches you, as though God is trying to catch you, in a really shameful thing, something you're embarrassed of, something that you think is wrong or know is wrong? What would God do if God just caught you red-handed in something that you were terrified of? How would God act? In Jesus, we already know the answer. We don't have to project what God is going to do because we've already seen in Jesus. He is the truth. He has revealed that to us. There's a story of a woman caught in a shameful act. She's caught in adultery. And she's brought to the city's center by religious leaders who leave the man out of the equation. But just bring the woman and they bring her right in front of Jesus and say, what should we do with this woman? 
Moses said to stone her, what do you think we should do? Jesus bends down the ground, scratches something in the dirt, and says to her, I don't condemn you. When we are caught in shameful things, we don't have to ask, what is God going to say to us? We don't have to ask, what is God going to do? Because in Jesus, God has already said to each and every one of us, neither do I condemn you. And I know all of us have things that we don't want from our darkness to be brought to the light. We don't want that. Everyone has things that we're embarrassed of and we don't want people to see. But we don't need to be embarrassed of what God will do. Because in Jesus, God has already said to us, I don't condemn you. You are loved. We don't need to question how we can project what God is going to do because it's already been revealed in the way, the truth, and the life. Sometimes I, uh, I hear people uh, in my own occupation who, uh, who like to brag about how pure and right and holy their church is and how they have all the doctrines right. And they always make sure everyone jumps through every hoop they put out there. And sometimes the hoops they ask people to jump through aren't even in the Bible anywhere, but they're ones that they've just created. And you go, well, like, why are you making people do that? And they say things like, well, we want to make sure they're right. And we, we want to make sure, we want to be sure. We don't want to leave any room for error, which is a nice idea. But when you start getting people to jump through hoops that Jesus doesn't ask them to jump through, you, got, you start going, what are you really doing to the message? And sometimes people think, well, we're just weeding out the weak people. And we're just making sure the message isn't watered down. And we're just safeguarding so everything is right. And we're just putting up some, some barriers so people don't, don't fall astray. And maybe they're projecting that God would say, good for you. Thanks for weeding out all these weak Christians. But in Jesus, we already know what God says to people who pile up on people. And make the path of following Jesus more arduous than it has to already be. Because in Jesus, we see God saying to religious leaders, Woe to you who weigh down people with heavy burdens and won't even lift a finger to help them. Jesus doesn't say, good job. Jesus says, woe to you. You're causing people to be hindered instead of to be helped. Maybe sometimes you wonder, you're trying to project what God would do for you because you continually fall short of the person that you feel called to be. And no matter how hard you try, you don't pray enough, you don't serve enough, you don't lead enough in your family, you don't love the people around you enough, you can't stop doing that one thing you need to stop doing. And you wonder, does God just get sick of me as, as much as I am sick of myself? And you wonder, is God sick of how many times I fall short and continually fall in the same sort of pattern, destructive choices? We wonder, what does God think of that? Well, in Jesus, it is revealed what God thinks of that. Because we see Jesus with the disciples time and time again dealing with their shortcomings. that look a whole lot like you are my shortcomings. We see Jesus interacting with Peter who at his most trying moment, Peter was not there for Jesus. And three times before the rooster crows, Jesus has been betrayed by his supposed one of his best friends in Peter. But in God, showing himself through Jesus, we see how God feels about all of us when we fall short. When we don't pray enough, when we aren't faithful enough, when we don't lead enough, when we don't do the right things. In God, 
through the person of Jesus, we see that God says, I still affirm you. Three times Jesus affirms Peter after Jesus' resurrection. We don't have to project what God is going to do in any of these circumstances because in Jesus it has already been revealed. In verse 7 of chapter 14, we see Jesus say this. Jesus says, If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. You've seen the way, the truth, and the life. So you don't have to project what God is like. Now, when you talk about this passage, this Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, you have to deal with the question of how do Christians interact in a pluralistic society? Because that seems to be the way that this verse is often used. How do you interact with people of different faiths and different beliefs? Because that's a big question for us. And that's the way this verse is, for some reason, often used. And we have to deal with this question because around us we have people who don't believe, who aren't believers. We have people who believe in things like Allah. And worst of all, we have people who are not just non-believers, but believers. Because they listen to Justin, or, uh, Justin Bieber, which is far worse than anything else. I was wondering if people were going to get the believer joke, and I'm glad you guys did. Thank you. But the thing that often is, is underlying that question is that now is somehow different from some other time. The underlying thought that now people are in a pluralistic society, as though they weren't like that back then. When it's always been that way. And so when we're trying to project, well, how would God want us to interact with people who have different religious beliefs than us? You look at Jesus. When we're trying to figure out how do we love our neighbors who have different religious beliefs than us, we just look at the life of Jesus, because he told a story about that. The story that we call the Good Samaritan. Jesus has been asked by someone, how do you love your neighbor and who's your neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan. Now, in those days, they were radically different from Jewish people. There are some scholars today that say the closest equivalent of a Jew to a Samaritan today is a Christian to a Muslim. The closest equivalent of a Jew back then to a Samaritan is probably a Christian to a Muslim. And if you have read the story of the Good Samaritan, it ends up with Jesus saying, go and be like the Samaritan. Go and love your neighbor just like the Samaritan loved you. And so if you're asking, what does it mean for us to love our neighbors in a pluralistic society? It goes back to the same point. How did Jesus say for Israel to love their neighbors back then? Because it has been revealed in the person of Jesus. And that's why Jesus can say, do not let your hearts be troubled, but trust in God and trust also in me. I had a friend uh, from across the pond named Tom, who when he was younger, he was uh, on a soccer trip. And he was really worried about how he and all of his soccer mates were going to stay at this one friend's house. And so uh, young Tom was in the vehicle, and one of their friends who lived in the area said, it's okay, you guys can all stay at my place. And Tom's going, how can we all fit in this place? And he asked him repeatedly, are you sure we can fit in your house? And they eventually pull up to this house. And it's not just a house, but it's a, a mansion. And Tom goes, oh, I see how we can all fit in here. It's, it's a mansion. There's plenty of rooms. And Jesus says, don't be troubled, but I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place. And there's enough room for everyone. You don't need to worry. Now, it's kind of a weird thing to say to someone who's stressed out. Hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's like when like, someone's crying, you go, 
hey, stop crying. Just, just, just stop crying. Just be happy. Like it never, it never works, right? Like if you're really frustrated and I'm really stressed about something, I'm like, oh, this has to be done. And Lindsay goes, look, it's no big deal. I'm like, it obviously is a big deal to me. And you go, that doesn't help me at all. But Jesus says that. Hey, hey, I know you're upset. Just don't, don't, don't be upset. It's, it, don't be upset. Which makes no sense. It's terrible counseling. Like my dad is a psychologist. I don't think would ever do that. Or actually he would to me as a kid. But that's a whole other story. But you don't do that unless you're Jesus. Because when someone's stressed, unless Jesus is who he says he is, then just saying don't be stressed doesn't help you. But if you have faith in who Jesus is, is if you really trust who Jesus says he is, then when you're wrestling with how do I interact with God, how do I deal with my own sin, how do I deal with hope, how do I deal with... Yeah, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you don't need to be stressed. If you believe what Paul writes in Colossians about Jesus, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, their firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you believe that about Jesus, then you don't need to let your heart be troubled. If you believe that. The writer of Hebrews says about Jesus, that in these last days God has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed an heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. If you believe that about Jesus, then you don't need to let your heart be troubled. The writer of John starts his gospel and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things that came to be were created through him. And he says, in him was light, and the light was the light of all men, and this light shall not be overcome by darkness. And if you believe that about Jesus, then you don't need to let your hearts be troubled, because you have seen the way to have your relationship with God mediated. You have had God revealed to you in Jesus, and you have had salvation given to you by him. And so you don't need to let your heart be troubled. And that is good news for all of us, am I right? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would trust in you, that you have been revealed to us in Jesus. And as we wrestle with the struggles of our life, which we all have, dealing with our shame, dealing with our worry for tomorrow, dealing with our worry for eternity, dealing with our concerns of if you really love us, if you're really there, Let us trust how you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. And my prayer is that we would believe the words that Jesus spoke. When he said, do not let your hearts be troubled, but trust in God and trust also in me. Help us to trust you. Christ in your name. Amen.